0: So this morning, I just want us to just take a moment just to consider um, what we've been going through. Some of you guys are new. Um, uh, We've been walking through the book of Mark, and Mark has been one of those authors that is really hitting the ground running. He he is trying to expose a reality of who Jesus is uh, very quickly. So as as we walk through this, we we can see the pace that Mark is uh, taking. And it's all to bring us to the reality to be amazed by the person of Jesus Christ. And that's our, uh, the artwork is actually, we switched over to some new artwork since we're in the second part. So if you guys remember the first part of this sermon series, it was really focusing on the power of Christ. Christ is demonstrating this power. And now we see the shift of, of Christ. We're really focusing on the person of Jesus, this intimate person. So this morning, we got a lot of text to run through. So if I can please have you stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to ask you to respond after I'm done reading. Um, Well, I'll say after I'm done reading, this is the word of the Lord. And I'm going to ask you to respond, thanks be to God, simply because we acknowledge that this is the truth, the word uh, given to us by the holy and righteous God. And we stand in reverence and in awe and truly amazed. Amen, church? All right, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, verse 22 uh, through 38. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his hands and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not uh, even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of uh, Keshia Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elisha, and others one of the prophets. And he asked him, but who do you say that I am? And Peter uh, answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them uh, that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days again, and after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words is an adulterous and sinful generation, Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we just, as we come to you this morning, Lord, uh, help us see you, Lord. Help us have the hearts to receive you, Lord. Um, Lord God, we just ask that the Holy Spirit would be present in such a way that our ears would be open in such a way that we would actually hear these words this morning, Lord. Lord, I know this text is specifically uh, talking about seeing, spiritually seeing who you are, Lord. So wherever we are coming through, uh, coming into this building as we come into this uh, church, Lord, help us lay aside the heartache, the the hardness, uh, the blind eyes to see you and open up our eyes, to bear uh, witness to your glory, God. Soften our hearts. Lord God, I just pray that you would uh, remove me out of the way um, and have your spirit speak, speak into every one of our lives this morning, Lord God. We say all these things in your awesome, wonderful, and powerful name, amen. You guys may be seated. So, good morning again. And real quick, before we get into the dive really deep into this text, um, I want you guys to know that we are a multi generational church, which means we focus and we um, want to see our children grow up into uh, Christians. We want to see them grow up into the faith. And so, when we have these family services, it's one thing to remind us that it's not just about the adults in the room, but it's about the children as well. Um, and the second thing to remind us is that, hey, guess what? We need LS kids of volunteers, <laughs> so you can sign up. No, 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 laugh. Okay, um, but we love our children. So I want you, if you got kids in the room, don't worry about them screaming or yelling um, or anything like that. Uh, we love them. We're excited that you're here. Okay. Now, this text. specifically talking about eyes and how people view Jesus. You see, our world has many views of Jesus. Our culture and society um, actually like the idea of Jesus in the sense that they love this philosophy of love, peace, hope, joy, Uh, you know, the Unicorn, cupcake, and rainbow stuff, right? Like, yeah, that that sounds great. But when it comes down to what Jesus has to say, when it comes down to um, what Jesus preaches about obedience to him, then there's a rejection of him because it doesn't fit in their lifestyle. Why do I want to live this way? Jesus says, no, you can't. So there's a rejection of him. Now, Christians can do the same thing. You see, they could say, yeah, I love Jesus. I love what it says about Jesus. Hey, I love John 3.16, the famous verse. But I want to ignore the rest of that text. I want to ignore the rest of John 3.19 where, it's, uh, where it specifically talks about living in the passage of sin makes us lovers of darkness and worthy of wrath. Ooh, I don't want to talk about that stuff. So what happens uh, when we only take what we like from the Bible is that we contort the scriptures, we contort it. We diminish the cross and we, we actually create a Jesus that we want to worship. And friends, that's called idolatry. We might say, sure, I follow Jesus. We might even say, I'll stamp the Jesus name on my forehead and be like, yeah, I'm a Jesus follower. But it might not be the Jesus from the Holy Scriptures. It might not be the Jesus that has been revealed through the word of God. We have to ask ourselves the question, have we created a Jesus that is actually not Jesus? You see, the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, they do the same thing. They stamp Jesus, but they couldn't be any farther from the truth. So I want just to get something clear to us this morning, okay? You know, my job as your guys' pastor isn't to present to you the Jesus that I want or the Jesus that I've manufactured. My job is to reveal the Jesus that has been revealed in the Holy Scriptures. Regardless, if something's rubbed me the wrong way or not, I'm going to give that to you. My job is not to make you feel better. My job isn't to make you uh, meet your emotional need to want to feel better about yourself and your life or your situation. My job is to preach the truth of the gospel message, to encourage you that you're not alone, but also point you to obedience. My job is to also point you To that, yes, we are sinners that diminish sin. But Christ has died on the cross reconciling us to Him. You see, in this passage, as we start navigating this, um, this is what Mark has been calling us to. Do we see Jesus clearly? Do we see Jesus clearly? That's my big idea for today. A second question could be, who is Jesus to you? I broke this text down into three parts here, okay? The first part is uh, the miracle, uh, verse 22 uh, through 26. The second part is a miraculous confession Uh, 27 through 33, and the last part is a morbid truth. A morbid truth. So let's dive right into here. Here in this passage, right in the bat, we see that, uh, uh, but another miracle Jesus performs here in Bethsaida. Uh, We see that a group of men uh, come up to Jesus and they bring a man that is blind to him, and they ask him. Uh, to heal him. And in, in the beginning of verse 23, we see that Jesus actually does something uh, a little uh, out of the ordinary, a little strange. Uh, instead of healing the man right there on the spot, uh, he grabs the man's hand and carries him off out of the town. He leads him away from this town. My question when I was going through this is, why, why, why did Jesus do that? why did he do that? Why did he take the man to the remote location? And I want us to understand as we start navigating this transition into this second part of Mark, um, we are in a part of a crucial turning point where a Jesus, his main focus is not actually to demonstrate his power, but to disciple his disciples. His eyes are now focused in and honing in on these men that are following him. So there's a few reasons why uh, Jesus takes this blind man away. The first reason is, first of all, Jesus is meeting this man intimately and personally. We know this. We don't really know anything really about this man, but we do know that he's from Bethsaida. And in Matthew chapter 11 through 21, it says Jesus cursed the city for its lack of uh, uh, its lack of belief uh, in him, despite the mighty works uh, Jesus has done. So we see uh, kind of a first reason here: uh, Jesus removes the blind man to. And actually at the end of this verse tells them not to return uh, because these people in this city of Bethsaida, they don't believe in Jesus. They've watched these miracles. They've watched Jesus do awesome things, but they don't believe. So Jesus basically going, it doesn't matter if we do it in front of them or not. Let's take, I'm taking him away from this unbelieving people. And then second, Jesus is giving his disciples a lesson. He's giving his disciples a lesson on spiritual blindness. I want us to see there's a way bigger picture than this first part here that we're going to dive into. Now, let's see how this all plays out. In verse 23, uh, Jesus spits on his hands, which is strange, and laid his hands on him and asked him, do you see anything? In 24, it says, and he looked up at I see people, but they look like trees walking. In 25, it says, Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Uh, So there's a similar story here that we went over a couple weeks ago with the deaf man, where Jesus spit on his hands, put his ears or his fingers in the deaf man's ears, and restored his um, hearing. So we see the same thing with this blind man. Jesus spits on his hands, puts his hands on the blind man. we don't know why Jesus spit, his hand, uh, spit on his hands and did this. There's a lot of different uh, theologians that have tried to dive into this. Uh, I'm not going to. I'm just going like, Jesus spit on his hands. We don't really know why, uh, but this is what he did. So spit on the hands. Maybe intimacy, any. Anyway. Um, but it's really besides the point. Uh, This is a just intimate situation here. The question really is after this part is why wasn't the man healed instantly? Why wasn't the man healed instantly? Why was it gradual? See, Jesus touches the man twice to heal him. Was it hard for Jesus to do this? Did Jesus lack power? The answer is no, because we've seen as we've been walking through Mark that Jesus has instantly healed people. He healed the paralytic instantly. He healed the leopard instantly. We saw Jesus cast out demons with a single word, and he stopped storms by word. So it's not about Jesus' power. What's going on here? And I just want us just to remember again... Um, Jesus' number one priority was not to heal physically. Jesus' number one priority was not to heal physically. All of these demonstrations of his powers, all of these healings that we've been seeing in the book of Mark was to reveal a spiritual truth. So this healing was for the man's physical eyes, yes, but it was more It was mostly about uh, the disciples spiritualize. Remember, the disciples have been struggling. They have been struggling with understanding who Jesus is. They've been seeing all these awesome things and yet just couldn't connect the dots. They didn't understand it didn't come instantaneously. Remember last week, right literally, right after the miracle of Jesus feeding 4,000 people, disciples get in the boat and they start arguing. I'm hungry. We don't have food. And Jesus is sitting right next to him. And you're like, come on, guys. Come on. And what does Jesus say? He, he says in Mark 8, uh, 18, having eyes do not see, having ears do not hear. So what, is Je- what, so what Jesus is doing here in this first part, he's giving the disciples a demonstration and an illustration uh, by a real man that was healed uh, to the disciples' current understanding of who Jesus is. You see, the disciples only understood part of the truth. Only part of the truth. But it was dim. They couldn't see clearly. I meant, they were standing in front of Jesus watching these miracles. They can clearly see Jesus, but they only understood half the truth. They were like this blind man, it was blurry. And Jesus is explaining here that there is this, there's two parts to spiritual seeing. Two parts to seeing Jesus. And we're going to get into that a little bit uh, more as we go uh, further into this. And the only way these disciples can see clearly is at this second healing, okay? Okay. So let's dive into the second part. It's a miraculous confession. Um, in this next part, we see that the disciples' blurred view, Jesus exposes. In verse 27, it says, When Jesus ask, then Jesus asks, Who do you people uh, say, who do people say that I am? You see, Jesus is asking and investigating a question. He's saying, hey, guys, what's up? What's the scuttlebutt? What's the 411? What's the information? What is the world saying about me? I want you to Let me know. And the disciples respond in verse 28. John the Baptist. Uh, others say Elijah. Others say uh, the prophets. I want you to note, too, like this comparison isn't bad. Like these people are like pretty awesome prophets and people. So it's not like they're diminishing uh, Jesus, but they had a complete misunderstanding again of who Jesus is. You see, and after this response, Jesus goes, okay, okay. And he focuses attention back to the disciples and he says, okay, that's cool. That's what the world says about me. Now, what do you say about me? It says, but who do you say that I am? Do you see me clearly? Church, this is a fundamental question every human being will have to ask or answer to. Who do you say Jesus is in your life? Who is Jesus to you? Are you influenced by what other people say? Are you influenced by what the, cur- the culture says that I am? Who am I to you? And here's the thing, there's only one answer. There's only one answer and we see Peter answer it. But what we'll see after this great confession that Peter uh, says, he still only gets part of it. Because if you confess that uh, Peter, that Jesus is your Lord, is the Christ, is the Messiah, you must accept everything that comes along with that and everything that means for you. So, how does Peter answer? You are the Christ. That's the right answer, yes. In Matthew 16, uh 16 16 uh, it says uh, Simon Peter answered you are the Messiah son of the living God and you're like yes go Peter he got it we've been like kind of rooting for these guys right and after this great confession Jesus said he strictly charges them not to say anything why does Jesus do that why does Jesus do that It's because Jesus understands something. Uh, Jesus understands that the Jewish leaders, the Israelites, those that have been interpreting the scriptures up to this point, have misunderstood the title of Messiah. They've misunderstood what the Christ would look like. You see, they believed that the Messiah would come, yes, uh, but they thought he would come to destroy the Roman oppression. Oppressors. They believed that the Messiah uh, would come on a horseback with chariots uh, uh, and, and flower, you know, and and like a grand parade. They thought the Messiah was going to destroy everyone that opposed the Jews. And so Jesus knew if this word got out, this misunderstanding of who Jesus is um, in this point in Jesus' ministry, it would cause an uproar. You see, they couldn't, the disciples couldn't connect, the Jewish, the Israelite people couldn't connect that Jesus did come to conquer. He did come to conquer something and deliver us from the oppression but it wasn't from man's oppression. It was from the oppression of sin and death. Peter did get something right, the title of Jesus, and it was a great confession. You know, Messiah means savior. And from this great confession, Peter res- or, uh, Jesus responds in Matthew 16, blessed are you, Simon of Jonah, it wasn't the church wasn't built upon Peter. Let's get this straight. The church is built upon this confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. So, church, if you walk into a church building and that is not the fundamental thing that you get in the in the service, is that Jesus is Lord and Savior, uh, run. You see, this is a great confession, but Peter still only understood half of it. And what Jesus wants to do is clear the air of what it means that he is the Messiah. And that's what we see in this next part. In verse 32, it, in verse 32 at the end of this, uh, it says that Jesus says it plainly. He is plainly going to give them the full gospel truth here. No parables, nothing to interpret, no confusion, no way to misunderstand. And he begins, he says in 31, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So this is an unpopular uh, uh, belief here. The Jews wouldn't like this. Peter didn't like this. So Jesus is stating here is that his kingdom is not what the world thinks it is. It's actually the upside down kingdom. It doesn't look like a crown placed on its head. It doesn't look like people with joy uh, cheering for him. but it looks like a rejection with the thorny crown to mock him. It looks like death on a cross, but it also looks like victory in the resurrection. You see, Peter didn't like this. And Peter takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. Peter! Remember when I read that, I'm like, oh, Peter... You're this close, man, this close to understanding, but so far away. You see, Peter didn't like what he heard. It didn't fit in what he wanted Jesus to look like. And if Jesus was going to die, what does that mean for the disciples following him? If his fate was death on the cross, What's our fate going to look like? I don't like this, Jesus. And what does he say? He says, um, no, or in Matthew, in the account of Matthew, he says, never, never, Jesus. This will never happen. He couldn't get it. He couldn't understand. He He didn't understand that Jesus was the same person talked about in Isaiah 53. The suffering servant the one that was going to be led as a lamb to slaughter without sin and innocent, the one that would be crushed by the wrath of God for the punishment of sin, bearing the iniquities of others to make many accounted righteous. He didn't get it. See, Peter and the disciples only dimly saw who Jesus was. Jesus was... Like that blurred image of the tree, like the blind man, that the blind man saw as he was being healed. And Peter says in the account of Matthew, never, never will this happen. And Jesus rebukes Peter in verse 33. It says, But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. If you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. Remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness? Satan tells Jesus, if you would just give in and bow down to me, you would not have to go through suffering. If you would just give in and bow to me, it's the easier easier way. There's gotta be another way. Surely you weren't created to die. It's the same lie that Satan has said in the garden, twisting the word of God. We saw the same lie in, the, word of, in uh, the garden of Eden. We saw the same lie in the wilderness with Jesus. And now we see the same lie here with Peter. And Jesus says, you still don't get it, Peter. You still don't get it. Your mind are on worldly things, selfish ambitions, worldly pursuits. My kingdom doesn't look like a crown. It looks like a cross. You see, as we walk through this book, we're gonna see that the disciples remained partially blind, They remain distorted to who the truth of Jesus. In fact, this is actually the first time out of three times Jesus is going to come to the disciples and be like, this is why I came. I came to be rejected, die on the cross, and rise in three days. And they don't get it. And we see this all the way up. So when Jesus is arrested, persecuted, rejected, hung on the cross, they still don't get it. Peter denies Jesus. And when he dies, when Jesus finally dies, they all scatter. They all abandon Jesus. So what happens? What happens is in the resurrection, God sends the Holy Spirit to seal his people, to finally remove the veil upon the people's face so that we see Jesus Clearly now, the disciples were cowards. But what changed after the resurrection? A lot of things changed. They were willing to die for Jesus, be persecuted, murdered. You see, the second healing, the second touch is by the Holy Spirit that truly removes the veil from our eyes. And now church, I think one thing that we can boldly proclaim, we we live in the time that the full revelation of God is here. We live in the time that the resurrected king is on his throne. We live in the time that we get to see the miracles of eyes that are once blind be opened. We get to see the miracle of hearts that are hardened to God be softened to him. We get to see addictions broken, uh, families mended. We see Jesus' power and work. This question still stands for us this morning. Who do you, uh, who is Jesus to you? And do you see Jesus clearly? Let's keep walking through this text. Clearly, the disciples didn't. And then Jesus wanted to proclaim the truth. If you're a disciple, if you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus, this is what it looks like. It's very applicational here. Jesus isn't beating around the bush. He's like, look, church, following me, this is what this means. And we have a morbid truth behind this. In verse 34, he says, calling the crowd and the disciples to them, if anyone would come after me, let them deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What's being said here? First of all, Jesus wasn't uh, killed yet, but the disciples would have known at this moment, they know what the cross is, the Roman execution device a brutal, humiliating device to shame whoever was put on it. And Jesus just said, if you're going to follow me, this is what you must carry. If you're going to be an imitator of me, I am calling you to die to yourself. In Luke, it says, take up your cross daily And then he goes on, he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will, uh, and the gospel's will save it. What Jesus is saying here is if your pursuit is your safety, if your pursuit is your security, if your pursuit is being comfortable where you sit. To save your own skin, you are living for yourself. And you're being called to lose your life. This is what sanctification is, church. Sanctification is God revealing the brokenness in your heart and killing it. Or not the brokenness, the sin within your heart. And ripping it from you. As Christians, we are dying daily, being, uh, becoming aware of our sin daily. And then he says, "For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul?" So he's giving these rhetorical questions: "Is your soul worth a price?" Jesus is saying. Paul McCartney, his wife, I think it's uh, Kathy McCartney, I think is his wife, um, she passed away, and he made this really awesome statement. He said, um, I have all the money in the world, all the toys, everything, but it didn't matter how much money I had, I couldn't save my wife. I couldn't prolong her life. I couldn't buy time. And what Jesus is saying, is there a cost? Is your pursuit is for this world because if your pursuit is for this world, you will lose your life. What Jesus is saying here is that as Christians, we are called not to be self-centered. Jesus is saying self-centeredness is put to death. A safe life is put to death. A self-serving life is put to death. In fact, everything Jesus commands us to do is to put us to death. Think about our five core values behind you. Disciples making disciples. What does that mean for you? That means you must be vulnerable to to interact with someone, to point them to Jesus, to know that they could reject you You're literally putting yourself to death. What does in the city for the city mean for us? As a church, we want to go out to the city. Well, what does that mean? That means that we're proclaiming the gospel truth and the world hates Jesus. What does that mean for us? That there will be a persecution. We live in a great time that there isn't persecution in the church right now, but that is not, familiar with every country we have Asian brothers and sisters dying by the drones trying to proclaim the gospel message and their governments are shutting it up we have people, uh, brothers and sisters in Pakistan that are trying to proclaim the gospel message, that truth life can be found in Christ freedom can be found in Christ and they are being executed for this belief Church, we're in a cushy place right now, but I promise you it won't stay that way. We must put away our self-centeredness. Now, let's churches planting churches. That's a a huge death. You see, our philosophy, our churches planting churches, as we grow, we're not a church uh, that believes that we should grow to 6,000 people. But we should uh, multiply the church. So as churches grow, we want to see more churches go out. But what that means is a sacrifice of relationship. You know, I came from Sparks, from the Livingstone Sparks. I miss my brothers and sisters there. I know they're right there. I miss them dearly. But for the gospel's sake, for the gospel mission, we're here. And we have seven churches planted now. Unity and diversity, it's, that's a clear one. We are a church to put to death country clubs. We're not about having everyone be in the, looking the same, dressing the same, acting the same, but God's kingdom is multi-ethnic, multi-fascinate, and his kingdom is glorified when we see that and then outsiders becoming insiders. We're putting ourselves behind others. We're serving others before ourselves. Jesus was a servant. We're called to serve. How do we apply some of these things? I think the best way to look at this, is what are your pursuits? How are you, what do you pursue? What's your ambition? What are the things that drive you? Look at your bank. Look at your bank account. What is your mind most focused on? What is your worth most focused on? We're called to die and live for Christ. You Remember what Paul says? Um, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Do you know what that means? It means that everything in us, as we walk into this world, as we go to the communities, as we enter into our job, our life is not our own anymore. It doesn't belong to us we are now representatives of the kingdom. It's about Christ. To live is Christ. And dying is the ultimate gain to be in the glory and the presence of God. I love um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says this The way may be hard, the Christian life, the way may be hard but the path and the end are glorious. And if you don't know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, oh my gosh, go look him up. Go read the book, look him up. Uh, this is a German pastor uh, back in uh, 1945. Um, I, don't, I wouldn't say I believe in his theology, but he said he must go out to Germany because he saw the injustices of Hitler and the Third Reich that he was going to go assassinate Hitler. He would preach the gospel, but his main goal in Germany was to kill Hitler. And he's like, I know it's a sin that I, I, I know this is a sin to go kill someone, but I feel like God's blood will atone me and that this injustice is worse. And whether I'm not gonna talk theologically if that's correct or non correct, but Bonhoeffer was kind of a, a BA. <laughs> And he went and preached the gospel, uh, tried to attempt to kill Hitler, and he was murdered. He was a martyr, murdered for the gospel's sake. And so these words, when he says, the way may be hard, and the path, but the path and the end is glorious, he knew that in this life, there is suffering. Church, do not be deceived that if you come to Christ, your life is going to be grand. I want to say the uni, unicorn cupcakes and rainbows. You're not, that's not the truth. And there's a lot of American churches that have twisted this. It's called uh, uh, prosperity gospel. They've twisted this, and they say, all right, Jesus, um, if I believe in Jesus all my desires will come to fruition. And that's not true. Clearly it's not true. I'm not driving a Corvette. People still die. Miscarriages still happen. Death is still all around us. Bonhoeffer knew this world is full of suffering, but the glory in the end is far outweighs the suffering. Church, do we see Jesus clearly? Here's the thing. I think there's another application here that I want to get to really quick. Now, when we're talking about um, this blind man coming to Jesus, remember, Jesus cursed this city, this land, but Jesus never rejects anybody. And what that tells us is one thing. We can bring people to Christ, we can bring them that may, we can invite them to church and know that Jesus is the one that opens the eyes, that puts a lot of weight off of you. You're not responsible for people to see Jesus clearly, God is. So, church, do you see Jesus clearly this morning? I know if you're like, I, I don't know. I don't know if I see Jesus clearly. I feel like it's fuzzy. I want you to know that sometimes it's gradual, but Jesus is working on your heart, and I pray that you will see him clearly. I think our our biggest hope in this, our truest hope, is that our God is the God that opens eyes. I'm going to read from this, I'm going to close up, okay? Um, It's a song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, and now I see. Church, that's true for the blind man. That was true for the disciples. It's true for me. Is it true for you? Do you see Jesus clearly this morning? Let's pray. Lord God... I ask that um, you would open our eyes and our distortions, clear up our distortions of you, Lord. Help us hone in on your truth in the word, Lord. Help us break away from false ideas of who you are, Lord. Lord God, we praise you and we love you, Lord God. Lord God, as you meet every single one of us, I pray that we would not be ashamed to go out and share the gospel news. That we would be bold in you, Lord. Lord, God, we praise you. We say all these things in your mighty, just, and wonderful name, amen.